Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to Back to Practice, episode three. And in this episode, we're really looking at academic settings in a pandemic. And we are joined by an esteemed group of colleagues here. Dilraj Gruel is an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Duke Eye Center. We have Adrian Scott, who is also an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. And Elliot Son, who is an associate professor of ophthalmology at the University of Iowa Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. And Elliot is also the director of Surgical Medical Retina Fellowships. I'm John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky here in Lexington, Kentucky. Today is September 15th, 2020. And as of today, we have 6.6 million cases of COVID-19 and 195,000 deaths. So I wanna thank each of you all for joining me uh, today on this panel. Um, we're gonna look a little bit at things in your general area, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the academic setting and in particular, some of the rules and regulations, how they were adopted, how effective they were, and how you're going to move forward in uh, the potential next wave of COVID-19, be it a resurgence or be it a gradual tapering off, uh, or in the advent of a, uh, of a vaccine, what, how that will look. I'm gonna start in, in Baltimore with you, Adrian. Thanks for joining us. Um, how are things in Baltimore? Things in Baltimore are, are good. You know, we have uh, fairly good numbers in the state of Maryland, approximately 5% infection rate. Um, you know, as far as at Johns Hopkins, we are at about, at least within the Wilmer practice with the retina division, we're about 80% of our volume. So, you know, with the uh, implementation of the infection control policies, we might be maxed out on the number of patients we can accommodate in a day, but we've we're able to ramp up our volume um, pretty quickly and the demand is there. It's kind of a surprise at how many people are just wanting to get in. You know, speaking specifically about the Baltimore area, you know, we saw New York take a really big hit. Boston also took a big hit. Did Baltimore just seem to evade having a significant outbreak of COVID? You know what, we, some of the cities were hit harder. So Baltimore city um, and within the state of Maryland, some of the counties a little bit closer, um, bordering DC, uh, Montgomery County, Prince George's County, uh, were areas that were they were fairly, um, uh, fairly, uh, very much affected. Um, but fortunately, I feel like our leadership was uh, decisive and made some good decisions early on. And I do think that uh, Maryland and Baltimore was the better for it. And, you know, Johns Hopkins has really been the, at the forefront of the epidemiology of this. Uh, I visit the Johns Hopkins global map constantly. Um, tell us, how have they been so effective at tracking, tracking COVID? You know, it's, 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 it's interesting because you think about, you know, what we do every day and there are people who set up and they're epidemiologists and this is what they do. You know, we have a whole pandemic response team that kind of just waits for a pandemic to come along. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, they've been on the forefront of being able to track the infections when, you know, you have the news media quote, they quote from Johns Hopkins. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's basically the infrastructure is set up, fortunately, for this, just this kind of event, which unfortunately hit and they were, they were in, the infrastructure was in place and they were ready to go. 
Well, kudos to them. They are absolutely phenomenal and they have led the world in this actually. And it's been really uh, amazing. Let's move on to Dilraj in North Carolina. Dilraj, you're at the Duke Eye Center. We talked a few months ago to Sharon Fakrat and she had some interesting thoughts and insights. How are things in North Carolina right now as far as COVID is concerned? We've been a little fortunate. We didn't get hit as hard as some of the bigger cities in the Northeast. As with everywhere else, the infection rate did start to rise later this summer, but now we're sort of back down to about a thousand cases a day in the whole state. And we are at a total of about 185,000 cases so far across the state. So it's fortunately- really, Yeah, it's amazing considering the population centers in, in North Carolina, like the Research Triangle in Charlotte, that you all have not had more cases. Yes, and I think it goes to speak, um, you know, we had a pretty early stay-at-home order, and I think that people, to a large extent, being a university-centric uh, triangle area, a lot of the jobs were able to be done remotely, so people, by and large, abided by that order. And overall, I think it's been pretty well controlled. And what about in the hospital? How are things there? Are there plenty of ICU beds? And then further, about the ophthalmology clinic? So yes, fortunately, we were never at a situation where we reached capacity on our ICU beds. There were uh, arrangements made earlier on in the spring anticipating the wave in terms of triaging patients, getting ICU beds allocated at some of the satellite centers, provisions for repurposing other um, inpatient units as ICU if needed, having additional staff members available as needed. Fortunately, we did not come to that. So, and that is across the entire state. As of now, the ophthalmology department is um, back to 80% plus volume um, as compared to pre-COVID times. We do have uh, protocols in place. We are still um, have provisions in terms of screening. We are back to basically seeing anybody who needs to be seen and performing surgery on anybody who needs surgery. Wow, that's fantastic. So elective cases, semi-elective cases like macular holes and epiretinal membranes, there's no delay on getting those done. Correct. We do require everybody to be tested and the current policy is within 72 hours of the surgery. They need to have a negative COVID test. Um, if they are COVID positive, then there are protocols for handling that if it is emergent. And what about your cataract surgeons? Dilraj, are they back up to full capacity or are they still limited? I don't think they're quite back up to peak pre-COVID volumes yet, but they're getting there. Um, I think there is a fair amount of sort of pent up demand of care that has been delayed, cataracts that have been delayed. So a lot of that is now coming back on. And we are seeing them getting busier and busier. That's fantastic. And Elliot, you're in Iowa City. Uh, probably the, well, definitely the smallest of all three of our guests as far as the city's concerned. Uh, how are things at the University of Iowa? Well, things are uh, good overall. You know, we had, because we're a relatively rural state with lesser number of people in the state and certainly in Johnson County around the University of Iowa, we did well early on. Uh, I think like we've seen a lot of places around the country the students coming back the university really made a big impact on a relatively small city. So our city, you know, is around 70,000 people or so, as you probably remember when you did your residency here. And, you know, 
a large portion of those people are students when they come back in the fall you got 20 25,000 people coming back at one time and our institution did allow that to happen and so there was a relatively large surge of patients in the last or I should say people who were positive uh, in the last couple of weeks because the students came back there were some days where there was a 50% positive rate of testing uh, for COVID-19 for RT-PCR. So it really got pretty scary. But if you look at it more carefully, those patients were, or those people were really in the 18 to 24 year old range. So they weren't people outside that range. There weren't the elderly, the number of deaths, uh, you know, people who got really sick didn't skyrocket. It certainly didn't get out of control with their ICUs and the ability of the hospital to control um, what was going on with patients, but it was really the students that really drove it in, in this instance. And since then, um, you know, we have to listen to both hospital uh, kind of epidemiologists, experts, as well as people like at Johns Hopkins, people at the CDC. Um, but of course, we have to listen to what our governor says. And our governor had kind of, because we're a relatively rural state, had allowed a lot of um, places, bars, uh, restaurants, um, gyms, all kinds of places to be open recently. And with the kind of surge that happened because of the students here, as well as in uh, kind of the Iowa State University area near Ames and Des Moines, on the other side of the state, uh, six counties were shut down uh, regarding bars and um, restaurants after a certain hour. And so that has really actually allowed the number to really fall pretty uh, in, in a pretty predictable way, but in a very good way too. Um, that uh, is, I think, safer for everyone. And are the college kids back full-time now? Are they, are they in school or are they doing more virtual school? How's the, how's the university handling that? Well, the university has uh, allowed the students to come back. And so many of these students did come back. Um, I think there is some virtual classrooms and learning still happening, but there have been a lot of these students and teachers um, back in session. I think uh, there, there were some days where it was, in the first couple of weeks, there were hundreds, if not over maybe a thousand, just in this local area that had um, positive patients. Um, and most of them, again, students. And I think there were, I think over a thousand and then uh, about 21 faculty who tested positive in that same period over a couple weeks. So you, know, you can see the dramatic difference between uh, professors and teachers, faculty staff versus the students. So yeah, it's really, uh, you know, these invincible kids going out to bars, going out to places where they shouldn't be really hanging out indoors, especially without masks and infecting each other. And how about the, how about the department? How is the department doing there? I think the department is doing really well. You know, I think the hospital responded in, in just the right fashion very early on to this pandemic. Of course, like many other places, we shut down elective surgery. And so in the beginning, you know, there were certainly some of my colleagues in optometry, cataract surgery, a lot of the elective cases. And, you know, when we had macular holes, we would put those off those kind of surgeries were really put off for quite a long period. But once the elective surgery ban was lifted by our governor, then we really started to see patients come back again. But it was a matter of us making sure the hospital was safe, making sure the pa patients were safe and convincing patients that it was okay to be here. So there were a number of things that the hospital did and our own eye clinic did to try to protect our patients. 
for instance, not letting visitors come in. You know, so for a while, there were no visitors at all allowed, and that was really challenging for taking care of patients. Um, and since then, there have been some, some revisions to that, exceptions to that, you know, post-op day one patients, patients who are about to go to surgery, patients on the day of surgery. So in terms of some exceptions, I think that has, there's certainly been evolution. And if, you're, if you want to know some of the exact details, like even I will have to look at the exact protocol of that day. Like, what are we supposed to do today if a patient's positive for COVID? Like, what are we going to do? Because it's different today than potentially a couple of weeks ago. As guidelines change, our epidemiologist in our hospital responds in a way that is trying to protect our patients as well as our staff. And that's one thing that a lot of patients really remark on is that they come now to the eye clinic and the waiting room is like relatively empty. You know, normally our waiting room, as you know, for retina, retina clinic is just, it's jam packed full of people. And now, you know, patients don't, they, they actually really like it. So they, they don't mind coming in. They say, well, this is, this is actually a, a pleasant, pleasant place to be now because, you know, even though my spouse or my loved ones can't be with me, like I don't have to be close to other people and I can get in and out relatively quickly. So we try to make things efficient as well. And Elliot, when these decisions are made, are they made from the upper levels of the university hospital or are they made on a um, department by department basis? I think both. You know, I think we certainly listen to the guidelines and trust the people kind of at the top because they're getting information from the top epidemiologists and we have one particular researcher who is, a, is a, a real expert in COVID and coronavirus before all this happened. So we, we have a lot of expertise in us. We're very fortunate in that sense and we trust them. And so, you know, we're also fortunate that our chair, Keith Carter, is also, uh, you know, very, he, he's been chair for, you know, quite a number of years and he's well integrated into the hospital administration. And so there can be a lot of um, positive feedback that happens there on both sides. So we really, there's feedback from him to provide gui guidance to the hospital administration as well as vice versa for the department from the hospital. Adrian, same question for you, uh, but a little bit different. At, at Wilmer and Johns Hopkins, does the ophthalmology clinic have a different set of rules than say the ear, nose and throat clinic than say, you know, dermatology would, or does everybody have to abide by one over ruling principle there? Yeah, so we're, we're, um, we operate and we're governed by the kind of the overall hospital um, epidemiology and infection control center, the ATIC. And so basically we have representatives uh, among our leadership um, to be able to sit in those meetings and participate in those meetings to understand and hear kind of the latest guidance. Because as we can all recall in the first days of COVID, you know, you know, things were changing rapidly and the rules were really, um, you know, kind of evolving as we went along day to day. Um, and so, you know, with that information, um, one of our, you know, vice chairs from those meetings um, would kind of gather all us Wilmer medical directors uh, together and on, on, you know, sometimes the calls were up to three times a week. It's interesting now they're kind of once every other week, um, but kind of when we were first trying to figure out what we were going to, uh, what was going on and how we were going to synchronize practices, we, we, we met by, by phone conference call fairly regularly. So, you know, we, we were um, governed by these overall regulations, but interestingly, you know, we had to try to adapt them to be ophthalmology specific, you know, like, okay, I have to wear a face shield all the time. 
but I need to have an indirect ophthalmoscope. How do I wear a face shield and how do we adapt that to meet the rules while we are able to do, you know, um, things that are specific to our practice. So, um, you know, also a lot of the rules were somewhat tailored to inpatient uh, settings and, 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 and those types of patient contact situations. And so we had to try to, you know, kind of adapt them to our ambulatory setting and, and, and surgery center as well. So, you know, a kind of a hybrid of, 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 you know, taking the overarching guidelines, but also trying to adapt and evolve them to our ophthalmology practice as well. And what about for the operating room? Do you all operate at a surgery center or in the hospital? And did you have to abide by the principles of the hospital or did you have separate for the ophthalmology side of things? Interestingly, so we have one big hospital, kind of hospital um, governed um, main OR. Um, it actually is Wilmer specific OR as, as a Wilmer specific OR, but it's kind of part of the overall hospital umbrella. And so we follow those, those policies. Um, there are two Wilmer ambulatory surgery centers where we perform ophthalmology care in our suburban practices. And that actually is a different um, governing body. So that was also kind of an interesting, um, you know, um, synthesis of one governing body and one ASC, you know, over the overseeing our ASCs and then the governing body overseeing the, the hospital-based surgeries. And so sometimes those things weren't quite consistent. So, you know, but, um, you know, so we, we, we had to try to, it came to a point where right now we are consistent with one another. So as uh, Elliot mentioned, um, all patients, asymptomatic patients for pre-op, uh, receive pre-op COVID testing, uh, PCR testing, and uh, has to be, be within 72 hours of the, of the case. Okay, fantastic. And Dilraj, mm -hmm. at Duke, who was making the decision? Was it coming from the university or was it coming from the heads of the ophthalmology department? Similar to how Adrian and Elliot mentioned, you know, it was a data-driven decision-making, especially as we moved past the early days of the pandemic. And taking into account inputs from the infectious disease epidemiology uh, folks, as well as our administration. And then there was some leeway in terms of trying to individualize things to the different departments. And some of it was just logistic-based. For example, the eye center is currently an entry to a fair amount of employees coming into the hospital. So therefore, that was a gateway to employee screening for a large proportion of uh, folks because they came from the parking garage into the hospital. So there were similarly you know, adjustments that were made for that entry point so that patients could also enter at the same time. And in terms of, I think the visitor restriction was really helpful because it reduced the overall burden in the clinic in terms of separating out the seats in the waiting area, in terms of the burden of cleaning the rooms between patients, and also in terms of moving patients from one waiting area to another, for example, from the initial waiting area to the tech room, imaging, and so forth. And that's been really helpful. And you, you, know, you can use technology as a sort of an augment because if the patient's um, attendants are waiting in the car, you can always connect to them while they're in the room. So things like that can really augment some of the um, experience that is missed out when they're not there. Um, but that has helped the flow quite a bit. And at, as of now, things are quite standardized uh, in terms of most people know, they, ex they know what to expect when they come into work. The employees know there's a protocol in terms of who needs to be tested. Um, the patients are also becoming more and more familiar. Um, you know, we have those rules in terms of waiting in the car if the waiting room is full we will give you a call when you come in 
um, things like that, or trying to streamline the process. Because the overall goal is so that patients spend the least amount of time they need to in the facility and you know, can move along the whole process pretty efficiently. You know, Dilraj, we've heard of some, uh, some practices and some academic institutions actually calling patients before they come in and pre-screening them. Um, is Duke doing anything like that? So we have multiple locations and some of our satellites have just the eye clinic, whereas others are more of a multi-specialty clinic and some of them are actually hospitals. So some of the ones that are an eye clinic only, we are doing that. While, so that just to reduce the number of patients in the eye clinic itself at any given time, we can screen them while they're outside, while in the, they're in the car. Similarly, if they're, getting, if they're getting backed up, we can ask them to leave and then we can make their appointments over the phone while they're in the car, rather than having, to, having them you know, have a backlog at the check-in, check-out counter. That's a great, great idea. I hadn't heard anybody talk about that at, at checkout. And what about telemedicine? Are you all doing anything as far as telemedicine or any kind of remote imaging and interpretation and then calling patients and discussing the findings? Yes, um, we did a fair amount of telemedicine early on just because there was no other option. You had to get in touch with the patient somehow. I think for retina itself, that has come down because a lot of patients are actually coming in. There are um, some options in terms of patients coming in, for example, just getting a pressure check, getting a visual field or an OCT, and then we can call them later on with the findings. That is being done, but on a relatively small scale. It hasn't really, because our first priority, I think, is to take care of the patients that are actually coming in and so that the resources are not uh, taken up by other patients. But I, we are actively working on that sort of a hybrid model of teleophthalmology where imaging is done at a distinct visit and then the more time consuming part of patient interaction and discussion can be done electronically. And do you think that's applicable to retina or do you think we treat so many patients when they're there that it, it may be a misgiving for retina to think that that would work for us? I think from the patient standpoint, it's better. So, you know, so for some patients who are coming in once every six months, once a year, for a relatively slowly progressive disease, it makes them feel a lot more comfortable to come in at a time when the clinic is relatively empty or over the weekend or in the evenings and not have to deal with the interaction of seeing, dealing with other patients. It, I think, makes their family members more comfortable, especially the ones that are in assisted living facilities, nursing homes, um, because for them to come to our clinic is an ordeal. You know, they have to go through their own set of approvals to be able to come to our place. And I think it just gives that additional layer of comfort. No, that's a great point. I didn't think about the after hours, you know, that, that makes perfect sense. Elliot at Iowa, you all have a very unique telemedicine AI um, type of research. How are you using that during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Yeah, so of course, IDX, and now it's called Digital Diagnostics, sort of by Michael Abramoff, is really kind of going global. And so we've had some use with that in, in our clinics, but really fairly limited. It's really something that's being deployed and uh, in, in meant to be in primary care offices, in you know places in the rural areas that don't have access to, to ophthalmologists, optometrists to be able to do the kind of yearly diabetic eye exams. So our use of telemedicine has been relatively limited in the retina clinic, 
of course, we do call our patients in advance and, you know, like the others screen, make sure that they're not having any symptoms. And when I talk to like my secretaries and people who screen the patients, they say no patient has ever said that they've had the symptoms <laughs> and they, they, they still come in. And we were for a while interested, and I will just related to that, um, when we started doing testing on all patients coming to the operating room who were asymptomatic, supposedly asymptomatic, 1%, 1 to 2% were testing positive who are coming to the operating room and we do our testing within 24 hours of the surgery. And that's a requirement by our hospital. So I do surgery on Monday. So it's challenging for patients because they have to come on Sunday and they have to come to the University of Iowa for their tests. We won't accept tests from outside the university. So they have to come to the University of Iowa. You know, some of these patients come from long distances, hours away. And so then they have to potentially stay multiple nights in the hospital. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Elliot. That's in Iowa, that is a very, very rural state. Adrian, how about you and Wilmer? What are you doing as far as telemedicine is concerned? You know, personally, I found telemedicine fairly limited uh, to be able to um, really get an effective retina visit across. Um, I have had colleagues in ocular oncology and inherited retinal degenerations that really made it work for them you know, um, to be able to counsel the patient. A lot of their, their, their um, visits are counseling and planning. Um, but, you know, for, for me and, and most of my uh, retina colleagues, it wasn't uh, very high yield for us to do the uh, telemedicine visits. That and there was still uncertainty about coding and, and, and the billing aspect of things. So again, it was somewhat an evolution as things were going. So I did not use telemedicine. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in a bit of agreement. We tried to set up telemedicine early on and really, um, really put a, a monumental effort into getting something established, but we found about half of those patients who ended up coming back for a treatment, and it really didn't seem to save much time. Uh, and then finding people to work on a Saturday was another whole issue as far as that, that was concerned. Um, I want to talk a little bit about training. Um, Adrian, you all do a, a huge residency program, a lot of fellowship training. How are you dealing with the training aspects for your residents and fellows? You know, it's interesting. I mean, it definitely uh, affected things, I and mean, especially um, some of the graduating residents who were on their, you know, their major cataract surgery block, right, uh, you know, right when, when COVID hit. And so, um, you know, they were, they were um, you know, fairly disappointed that their uh, surgical volumes were, were were impacted in such a way, you know, you would, you know, they would be kind of hanging around the OR just waiting for any case to go, you know, it was great to interact with them, but they uh, unfortunately had a lot of their elective cases, um, you know, um, taken out, taken out of their control. So, um, you know, now, you know, the volumes are, are not quite up to capacity, but their, you know, elective surgeries are proceeding. So the volumes are a little bit, um, you know, starting to rise now. And we have residents and fellows in our clinic now um, seeing patients with us. And, you know, during, you know, I guess maybe probably March and April, we had pulled residents off of the, uh, you know, the, the elective rotations and, and the subspecialty rotations. And, you know, these residents were actually, um, you know, some of the ones that would, um, you know, be, we were training to see consults on COVID positive patients and patients who had ophthalmic issues. Um, you know, we were, you know, geared up to, you know, we were asked, all of us were asked, you know, are we going to be deployed and what aspect could we be deployed to take care of, you know, COVID positive patients and, um, you know, our residents, you know, you know, volunteered and stepped up and I don't believe anybody was pulled into actual clinical care of COVID positive patients, but they were prepped and ready to do so. Wow, that's amazing. And 
on the interview trail, how are you all going to handle interviewing residents, fellows? It's a whole different dynamic when people can't do away rotations. Um, how are you dealing with that? All right. So I guess the, one of the, the positives of it, of it all is I tell some of the, some of the individuals whom, whom I've mentored is everybody's on the same playing field. So everybody's virtual now. So, you know, it's definitely a disadvantage to um, miss out on seeing a place for yourself uh, in person and getting a feel for the atmosphere. Um, um, but, you know, getting around it certain ways by trying to plan a dynamic virtual interview day and, and, and being able to try to, you know, do cute things like the fellows making a, uh, making a video of a day in the life of a fellow. And that's something maybe every applicant could watch in advance. Uh, so, so lots of ways that we can try to try to kind of do an end around and, and give someone a flavor of the program. But, you know, it's just, it's just not the same. Um, you know, one, one positive of it all is that I think everyone's going to save a lot of, of money on the, you know, all the, the, the plane fare, and maybe they can experience many more programs if it's just a click of a button, as opposed to having to fly across country and, 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 you know, and try to try to travel to various places. You know, you're absolutely right. There's so much that's lost by not having a person come interview, you know, in person. And I'll tell you a couple of things. Our examples, you know, my secretary would always come back and say, I like this person or I don't like this person. And that's an interaction that is completely lost on Zoom calls. And the fellows would always take the uh, applicants out the night before they interviewed. And they come back and say, I really don't like this person, or I really like this person, or this person's really interested in Kentucky. And so you just lose that. And I just worry that we're not going to be as good about picking our fellows. Elliot, you're the fellowship director. What, how's Iowa going to deal with the fellowship program, interviews, and, uh, and also residency? Yeah, so like other programs, we're going to be doing it via Zoom. And so we're organizing all that right now, looking at all the applications and hopefully we'll be sending out interview invites very soon. But we're organizing and, and, and like Adrian said, there's some flexibility with this because it's on Zoom. Now we're gonna actually do our interviews on Saturdays, which is not ideal for anyone, but it allows us to not have to take away time from our clinics, our ORs, our research. Um, and we can do this um, maybe over a kind of like seven hour period on, on two Saturdays. So that's our plan. For the Retina Fellowship, and we're uh, doing some things to uh, meet this challenge of trying to engage the applicants in a unique way, where you know maybe people were already hesitant to come to Iowa City because they're like, it's Iowa, it's Iowa City, like well, why would I go there? And now we have to meet that challenge in a different way, where we can't obviously bring them here, but we can show them videos, we can try to. Uh, you know, show some pictures of some very unique things that Iowa has to offer in terms of like the outdoors, nature, and those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, it's just a different way of trying to interact. Um, you know, some people say that maybe people at their home programs will have an advantage or maybe prefer to stay at those home programs. But I think just like any other year, we're going to rely heavily as well on our friends in Retina. So who our colleagues are across the country and say, you, you wrote this great letter. Is this, is this the real deal? Is, is he or she the real deal? Or we'll call some other people, um, program directors or other people who we know in rent programs at those institutions, which we always do, and just say, just, just tell us about this person. And that's why it's nice to have those uh, good relationships with people because that can go back and forth because they may be in, interested in someone in Iowa because we have two people applying for a Retina fellowship. Um, and so I think that can go both ways for this year. 
I, I do think that for, for residency, I think it's going to be very similar. We've been talking to uh, our program directors, Tom Oding, of course, and our associate program director, Paulina Kemp, who's done a phenomenal job, who's coming on doing some administrative leadership duties with this. And we're going to do some similar things where we're basically going to have an interview day of, uh, you know, the applicants with the faculty, probably paired. For us, we're, I think we're, we're also going to try to engage some of our alums, which is very unusual. Um, so we're going to do that. Um, maybe, maybe, call you, maybe they'll call you, John, to do that. Um, but, I, you know, we've already been reaching out to people, and, uh, and our alums are really, I mean, they love training at Iowa. And so, you know, they're really happy to talk to people and try to convince people. Because without visiting, you don't really know. So you have to talk to people who've been there. And so, you know, we, we open up our uh, Rolodex to the applicants and just say, you can just uh, call any of our previous faculty or uh, certainly our alumni, fellow alumni, just talking about the program. What, what was their experience like and how did it help them in their current practice? It's such a family uh, oriented practice out there. I mean, it just really is a tight knit group with very little change, which is really a nice thing. I don't think you have any problem when you bring fellows out in September or October selling them on Iowa. It's only when you get to January that selling them on Iowa gets a little bit tough. Dilraj, uh, how are you all handling the fellowship interviews and residency selection process? I think very similar to what Elliot and Adrian mentioned. You know, it's going to be a new experience for all of us. And we're trying to make it as interactive, as engaging, as realistic as we can, um, relying on our fellows, you know, like the ideas of giving the applicants a tour of what their day is like, having an individual discussion with them, um, some showing them some videos, more sort of one-on-one -on -one discussions, and then of course relying on our friends and colleagues, you know, across different programs as well to talk to them about the applicants. That's fantastic. Dilraj, back to you on this question. How's research been affected? And I don't mean the phase three clinical trials. I mean the basic science type research that an academic institution of Duke's reputation is well known for? So initially in the spring, everything was shut down. It was a blanket order that all research needs to be halted. And a large extent was that, you know, folks couldn't come in because there was a stay at home order. So human subject research, as well as basic science research, with the exception of those who had you know, critical deadlines that needed to continue. So there were exceptions made for that. And after that, there was a sort of data-based, uh, data-driven approach stepwise to allow people to resume research. So what they did was they have clinical research units for every department. And they were tasked with and looking at the protocols that were active prior to COVID or those that are supposed to come on, assess their impact, their importance, their viability, um, get feedbacks from investigators in terms of what kind of resources are going to be required to get those protocols back in place, other collaborators, and then make a case-by-case -case decision in a phased manner as to which uh, protocols are going to be online. So that process is still undergoing. Um, you know, we are in phase two of that process. So majority of our research uh, protocols are now up and um, on enrolling. There are certain restrictions, of course, you know, clinical research has to abide by the restrictions put in place in their, in the clinics themselves. Um, there are restrictions in terms of how many patients you can bring 
in one day for a research study and, and those types types of things. But for the most part now, it is back in place. And and has this affected the grant writing process, the grant acceptance acceptance process? Has the government slowed down giving grants, or has there been any change on acquiring funding? Since this was a pandemic, everybody was affected. And in fact, the grant uh, authorities have been very understanding. There have been no cost extensions that were provided by several sponsors, you know, and in fact, there was also allocations for idle effort or, you know, because even though you're not able to participate or do the research, this is still your job. And there are many people who are dependent on those grants. So that's actually been very nicely handled by both the federal authorities as well as a lot of the private uh, grant uh, institutions. That's, that's fantastic and actually really surprising. Elliot, uh, same question for you. How has the research been during the pandemic? Have you stopped doing some of the basic science research and how's the grant writing process? In the, in the beginning, it was very challenging. Uh, you know, they, they certainly shut down our, the research labs except for essential research that had to be done where animals had to be done within a certain time period for experiments. So there were some experiments that were still going on. It was highly limited basis. There were some experiments that had to be kind of halted and that's, that's difficult. That's frustrating for our programs. What we've done recently at the Institute for Vision Research is because of the difficulty in obtaining tests, um, my colleagues at Stone, as you know, Val Sheffield and others have actually started doing COVID testing twice a week for all of our Institute for Vision Research employees. So we're doing that for them as well as our immediate family members, doing it twice a week. We did blood at the beginning and now we're doing a sputum sample that's been verified by Val's lab to really test people to look. We have the capability in our IVR to do 4,000 PCR tests per day for COVID. And people like Ed and others were talking to hospital administration and saying, look, we can do a lot more tests than you guys are doing at the moment, beginning of the pandemic, we can help. And, uh, and so now that's how we're doing it is by doing this research-based study, but in a way where we'll be able to get some information. And if something turns out positive, we can assess, is this real? Should we likely send them home, be on quarantine or are the family members or close contacts also positive that, that requires that employee to stay at home. So that's over a hundred um, people in our IVR who are getting that done. And so that's, that I think that's, I think very effective for trying to do um, uh, certainly uh, uh, testing and uh, determining what we can do with our research unit. And it, you know, with the students, we expected there to be a big surge with these students. And what we didn't know was, is a university research labs going to get shut down again? because of the surge. And so we basically started this test, this testing to be done as well. So in case they try to shut down the university, we can say, look, well, we have mission critical things to restore vision to these blind patients with our stem cell based treatments. We, we have our own, you know, we, we can keep going because we can do the, uh, uh, do this ourselves. So I think that's a very unique thing that's happened um, with our research labs at University of Iowa. That's amazing. So Carver lab and the MBA bubble. Both are testing their <laughs> employees twice a week. Uh, only Ed would think and Val would think to be able to do those things. Adrian, for you, and we'll wrap up on this question, uh, how's clinical research going? Uh, as far as clinical trials in an academic setting like Wilmer Eye Institute, uh, are you able to maintain those follow-ups with patients and maintain those studies or have they kind of come down and said, no, put a hold on everything? 
Yeah, as uh, Dilraj and Elliot uh, were uh, describing their experiences, ours at Hopkins have been similar. We were shut down completely um, at uh, during the spring and then had a gradual phase in, um, you know, for essential researchers. Um, you know, it, it, it right as of now, clinical research, tri research trials are ongoing, patient visits are allowed. Um, you know, so we're, we're pretty much back and running, up and running. Uh, one interesting thing that actually was a phenomenon of everyone being home in the spring is that um, people seem to be a little bit more, even more productive about writing. So there was, uh, you know, a time to finally sit and write that grant or, you know, finally finish that paper. And so that was one positive of, of, of having to be home. Do you think there's going to be a lot lost by that absence of research for two or three months, that there's going to be a lot of studies that are kind of unfulfilled or incomplete because of it? Well, we're definitely playing catch up. Um, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, the industry uh, clinical trials were allowing, you know, exemption, exemptions to certain, you know, um, study visit windows, because obviously, as Dilraj mentioned, it was uh, affecting everyone. So, you know, there was some grace within um, so the clinical trial um, protocols. Um, but now, I mean, I think overall, everything is going to balance out and we'll be on track because right now we're, we're catching up and things are proceeding at a, at a, at a good pace now. Well, that's good to know because there's so much effort put into clinical research in those trials. I want to thank all of you for being on tonight. Dilraj, Elliot, Adrian, um, thank you all for listening to episode three of Back to Practice and stay tuned for further episodes as we continue to dive in to this unique um, and unfortunate phenomenon of COVID-19. Thank you all for joining me. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and No Tall Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.